Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Tier Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Mariko Togashi, IISS Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy and the API Matsumoto Samara Fellow. And I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. Before we start, I'd just like to inform our listeners that this month's episode is a very special episode. It marks the first year, our first birthday of the Japan Memo podcast. So, on behalf of the IISS Japan Chair Program and all the team, I'd like to thank everyone for listening over the past 12 months. It's been a pleasure making this, this podcast, and we really look forward to providing you with more content and analysis on all things Japanese strategy in coming months and years. So, thank you all. Right now, back to the matter at hand. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Maria Shigina. Maria is the IISS Diamond Brown Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions. Standards and Strategy. Before joining the Institute, Maria was visiting senior fellow at the Center on US Politics and Power at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs and a research fellow at the Center for Eastern European Studies at the University of Zurich. Maria has conducted extensive research on economic statecraft, international sanctions, and energy politics, with a particular focus on the post Soviet states. Maria was also in Japan for two years at Mitsumeikan University. As a Japan Society for the Promotion of Science postdoctoral fellow. Maria, a warm Japan memo welcome. Are you joining us from the IISS Europe office today in Berlin? That's correct. And thank you very much for having me on your anniversary podcast. Absolute pleasure. And we've got a fantastic session ahead of us, I think. But let's start with the Shangri La dialogue, the 2022 Shangri La dialogue, which you were at. The Ukrainian president's one of the highlights of the dialogue, I thought. President Zelensky gave a powerful speech in which you asked him a question directly on food security. And for anyone interested in hearing this speech, it's on the IISS.org website. So do log in. A very excellent speech. What was the biggest message from the president's speech in, in your view? It was indeed one of those powerful speeches, and we have heard quite a lot of those speeches from Zelensky in the recent months for the obvious reasons because he wants to strike the right chord with every corner in the world. And this time, Asia was the primary focus. Asia is not necessarily on top of Ukraine's agenda, so it was a prime opportunity for President Zelensky to reach out to other corners of the world, to countries that perhaps a sitting on the fence or a taking a more neutral stance on the affairs in Ukraine. So for him, it was important to build this emotional link to countries like India, China, Indonesia and others, and to build the bridges between those countries. Rather predictably, Zelensky uh, used connections between the countries. For example, he referenced former Singaporean prime minister citing him on the importance of the international law, saying that if there had been no international law and the big fish ate a small fish and the small fish ate shrimps, they wouldn't have existed. So he likes to bring this these connections and makes it very local to the population. The second link that he made was to a simple Singaporean girl. He appeared in a t-shirt that was designed by a Singaporean girl who reached out to him 
And he made a poignant comparison between uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and him that that wouldn't have happened in the Russian context. So he wanted to appear very down to earth, a person that is very approachable and that is in a clear understanding of what's happening. You're right. I mean, that that was quite poignant, the the sort of T-shirt illustration. I mean, it was a fantastic T-shirt as well. A real sort of sense of his understanding of how to connect with an audience in a powerful way. In the speech, the president said that Ukraine needed preventative sanctions to be placed on Russia before the war began. From an Asia point of view, what lessons can be learned from Ukraine that we can apply to a potential Taiwan contingency? Should, for example, countries consider preventative sanctions to prepare for and prevent contingencies, for example? His phrase might have been taken out of the context and was published by major Western media. He mainly talked about the Ukrainian context, what it meant for Ukraine that sanctions were imposed from his perspective rather late. If we study sanctions, uh, and I do uh, do this, the first rule is that sanctions are most effective as a deterrent. So you keep it in reserve and you threaten with sanctions, and this is the most effective way to use sanctions. From his point of view, and he said it before the war in Ukraine happened, you need to use sanctions now. If you're certain that Russia will invade, why waiting for it? So when he was asked about the question of Taiwan contingency, he made this comparison that for Taiwan, they might be a lesson learned how to gather international support to galvanize that restrictive measures are put in place before something happened to that island. So if we focus a bit more now on Japan's response to Russia's invasion of of Ukraine, Tokyo's decision to implement swift and tough sanctions in response to the invasion, I think, took quite a few people by surprise, particularly given Japan's record previously on sanctions. What factors do you think have prompted this unprecedented response from Tokyo? and, And how do you evaluate the response overall from Japan? The response from Japan was really unprecedented, and we will overuse this word against the backdrop of unprecedented sanctions. The Japan response was unexpected by Westerners as well, because of the history of the 2014 sanctions. The previous sanctions were rather symbolic, belated, and you could feel that Japan was joining, but rather reluctantly. This time was very different because Japan joined early on. There were no particular delays in joining each package of sanctions, and there have been quite a few by now. And also, Japan used the G7 platform as a platform for coordination. Back then, that was a peer pressure group for Japan. Japan felt they was obliged to join other G7 members because otherwise it would feel it was in isolation. So for me personally, the big three sanctions measures that Japan joined and overall they make this big deal why we're talking about this unprecedented level of sanction is that Tokyo denied selected Russian banks access to the global SWIFT messaging system. 
it imposed strict restrictions on the Central Bank of Russia, and it also sanctions key Russian leaders, including Russian President Putin himself. So that is a sea of change with what we saw in 2014. The Central Bank sanctions took not just the Westerners by surprise, but also Russian officials. Since 2014, Russia conducted a strategy of de-dollarization on the level of its international reserves, and the pivot to the Japanese yuan was quite pronounced. As of January 2022, the Central Bank of Russia had over 10% in Japanese yen. So the freezing of those assets was rather surprising and also unexpected by Russian officials who thought the U.S. will follow up on that measure, maybe the Europeans, but they didn't expect that Japan will follow. So Japan froze about $58 billion. If you put it in comparison with Germany, it's $55 billion dollars with the UK's 26. So the, the number is quite significant. Going back to the reasons why Japan toughened its response, to me it boils down to three factors. First of all is the gravity of the situation. The annexation of Crimea was a breach of international law, but it wasn't maybe as severe as now. Today, we're talking about the magnitude of atrocities in Ukraine that are incomparable, inhumane, and that struck the court with general population in Japan. 73% of Japanese are in favor of sanctions, even if it means higher costs for Japanese citizens themselves. There was a strong public support in general. Japanese public donated over $17 million for relief fund for Ukraine. There has been also daily coverage of situation. The Ukraine war remained quite high on the Japanese agenda. The second reason is making connection between what happens in Eastern Europe doesn't stay in Eastern Europe. The same reference was said by the previous Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, but the current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida really followed up on this statement that arc of stability does make a difference for East Asia, where the security architecture is particularly fragile. At the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore, he said a very apt phrase saying that Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow, indicating of the wide implications for how the war in Ukraine is resolved will also have ramifications for any instability in East Asia. He also said that no country or region in the world should shrug off this war as someone else's problem, again, pointing a finger at China, India, who potentially will be sitting on the fence on this problem. For the current prime minister, restoring confidence in the rule-based international order is the key challenge for his term. And this is what he emphasized in his speech in the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. Last but not least is the change in perception of Russia. That is also a very strong contrast with the previous administration. This is, I think, also why we've seen this unprecedented level of sanctions from Japan.
Originally, Kishida san followed on Abe's youth. The idea was to keep this link between economic cooperation and the potential to solve the territorial dispute, the northern territories as they are called in Japanese, or the Kuril Islands in Russia. This is a long-standing dispute between Russia and Japan since 1945. But the war in Ukraine has disrupted this logic of how to deal with Russia. It was a similar blow to the Abe's Russia strategy. Russia policy in 2014, and that had turned the Russia policy upside down. Kishida-san announced that there will be no intention of continuing peace treaty negotiations in the current circumstances. The government also brought back the language. Japan started referring to islands as inherent territories of Japan that have been under illegal occupation by Russia, something that Abe-san avoided saying it outright. And there have been also calls to scrap a cabinet position that was established in 2016 to oversee economic cooperation with Russia. So the name Russia was included in the ministerial title, which was aimed to, to sweeten any economic deals that would come up with Russia. While Russian coal and oil imports will be phased out by Japan, Prime Minister Kishida has said that Japan won't abandon its stake in the Sakhalin 2 LNG project due to is critical necessity for Japan's short and medium-term energy security. Tokyo's recent power supply warnings obviously highlight the fragility of Japan's power supply situation. Currently, Russia's about 4% of Japan's crude oil imports and 9% of its LNG imports. Do you think that Japan's sanctions can be effective while it continues to depend on Russia for its energy? That is indeed one point where Japan delayed its decision on joining European and Western countries in phasing out Russian fossil fuels. And that goes back to Japan's very precarious and vulnerable position when it comes to energy security. It's energy-hungry but resource-poor island that is highly dependent on Middle East energy. So Russia has traditionally, or for the past few years at least, have been this diverse to reduce this dependency on the Middle East. Japan joined the, the coal and oil in principle, and this is how it was phrased by Prime Minister Kishida, saying that they will define their own timeline under the right conditions when the Russian fossil fuel will be phased out. That is similar somewhat to the discussion that Germany uh, is having um, in Berlin, how to phase out Russian energy without jeopardizing its own energy security. Because domestically it would mean high electricity prices, inflation, and that might be harder to sell domestically. While the domestic support for energy sanctions is quite high, over 70% in April, I think in May was 68%. The government is understandably cautious how to do this and under what conditions. Summers in Japan are quite high, so it doesn't mean that in summer Japan doesn't need um, any Russian fossil fuels. The projects in question are indeed where Japan didn't follow suit. For example, American ExxonMobil and also Dutch UK Shell withdrew from Sakhalin uh, 2 project, claiming reputational damage. Japan didn't follow. 
And that is indeed a slight outlier in terms of corporate behavior, but it's very much in line with the behavior of other Asian companies. Other Asian companies from South Korea also were quite reluctant to withdraw immediately. They paused new investments or the future cooperation with Russia, but they were very cautious to divest immediately. For Japan, Gazprom Sakhalin project is very important in terms of uh, its supply of LNG. Japan receives around 8.8% of Russian LNG, and it is quite hard to phase out it immediately. Japan has uh, forged a collaboration within the Quad format, in particular with Australia, to secure more LNG cargoes from elsewhere. And that goes also long-term in line with Japan's policy of decarbonization. There has been a push in Japan when I was there in 2017 how to increase the share of renewable. That didn't happen. And similar as we see in the European context, the war in Ukraine has been this real driver to speed up decarbonization, to speed up energy transition. So now Japan is quite ambitious and its plan states that by 2030, Japan will have 50% share of its renewables, and it does have a big potential on that island, that the nuclear power plants will be relaunched given the security standards uh, will be secured there. So in this case, the the long-term strategy of Japan to to be more self-reliant on renewables, also nuclear power plants, goes well with phasing out Russian uh, oil and gas, but in the short term is rather painful and there are not many suppliers who can uh, step in. Maria, I'd also like to ask you about what Japan can do further. With its constitutional limitations to its military, Japan has leveraged its geoeconomic power to achieve its foreign policy objectives. Tokyo's sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine reflect these objectives. They have been broad in scope, targeting everything from energy to individuals to semiconductors. But with the limits of the current sanction regime in mind to maintain pressure on Russia, what are some sectors in which Japanese sanction would be the most effective moving forward? Where do you think in Tokyo best exert pressure on the Russian economy at minimal cost to its own? That is a very hard task to to do because... That question requires looking at the broader context of Japan-Russia economic relations. And we have to say that the foundation has been there historically, but it hasn't been as deep as Russia relations with the West, with Europe in particular. For example, in 2014, the share of Russian imports to Japan was at its peak 3%, and the share of Japanese exports to Russia was only one3 After that, these percentages have only aggravated getting smaller and smaller, sometimes due to sanctions placed in 2014, but largely because of uh, OPEC legal system, red tape and administrative hurdles that Russia is, is known for. With Abe, Putin thought to increase the share of the bilateral trade turnover by 50%, and in 2017, that was around $30 billion. So the, the fundamental of Russia relations are quite thin, uh, if we can phrase it in that way. And we're talking about the exchange of Russian hydrocarbons for 
usually Japanese cars, sometimes secondhand cars. So this is the, the main uh, ties that uh, bind the two countries. So despite the complementarity, the economies are not as intertwined as perhaps uh, it was wished by Prime Minister Abe. Also, if we look at the share of Japanese investment, it hasn't been significant. Japan accounted for 0.03%, so that gives you a perspective. Since 2014, uh, Japanese businesses who were in Russia withdrew because of the increase in sanctions regime. And today we're talking the, about the unprecedented level of sanctions. So the pressure to withdraw will be there. So to, to find those points of leverage, it requires this interconnectedness between the economies. So one asymmetrical weapon that Japan did have, as I mentioned, is freezing Russia's central bank assets, where Japan and did have power to do so without the necessity of hurting itself. In the future, it will be important that Japan joins Western sanctions because if it doesn't do so, there could be a potential room for circumvention. So for me, this is the main area where Japan adds the, the value to the sanctions regime. Shifting our conversation to the economic implications of the sanctions more broadly, the West has put on so-called full-on sanctions for a few months against Russia. It is never easy to measure the effectiveness of sanctions, but how effective do you think is the current sanctions on Russia overall? Are we close or far from achieving our goals? We need to maybe go back one step and talk about the economic impact of sanctions because effectiveness is something else. Effectiveness should be measured vis-a-vis -vis the objective of sanctions. We're seeing the unfolding economic impact on the Russian economy, and we can discuss it in a few seconds. But to link it to political effectiveness requires time and also effort from everyone who is imposing those sanctions. So in the short term, the, the Russian economy has been hit by these unprecedented sanctions. Russia's GDP is forecast to contract by 10-15%. In the long-term uh, perspective, we're talking about the multi-layer decoupling between the Russian economy and the Western economies. And the foundation for that was energy, um, energy exports in exchange for Western capital and technology. With all sorts of sanctions that are being in place there on energy, also expert controls on any advanced technology, there will be a technological decoupling, financial and economic one. The Russian economy will have to search for new partners, and there are early signs that Moscow is reaching out to other sanctions, uh, countries like Iran, Venezuela, and trying to collaborate where it's possible, but also to non-aligned countries like China and India, who will play a major role and will define the impact of sanctions and also the effectiveness of sanctions. Going back to the effectiveness of sanctions, that is defined by its objective. And the objective today is slightly modest today. It's to erode Russia's ability to fund this war. Hence, the energy sanctions are very important, and it's important they were agreed. The oil embargo was agreed by European leaders. Going forward, it's important also to factor in any restrictions on gas. Similar uh, Europeans are very vulnerable to cut off any supplies of Russian gas. Um, the same implications for Japan. But this is the way to tighten the sanctions in the future to deliver on the objective, which is to erode Russia's ability to fund the war. 
In Asia more broadly, countries have appeared to be rather ambivalent vis-a-vis -vis sanctions. China has taken this a step further and committed to easing the strain on Russia's economy by, for example, greatly increasing its purchases of Russian crude. In fact, Russia has now displaced Saudi Arabia to become China's largest crude oil supplier. How do you see senior Russian relations evolving politically, military, but especially economically in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Do you think Moscow's relationship with Beijing fix or ease its economic concerns? All eyes are indeed on China, how much they can alleviate the impact of sanctions, how much they can step in and save its partner in need. And at the moment, we don't see any systemic support from Beijing. And that is similar to Chinese behavior in 2014. When analyzed Chinese support uh, back then, it was clear public-private divide. That the Chinese private sector always over-complied with sanctions, sometimes due to the risk of secondary sanctions, sometimes due to lack of the regional expertise about Russia. But the idea was because the Chinese private sector is so dependent on the U.S. dollar currency, it wasn't really an appetite to violate Western sanctions, in particular from the U.S. But there have been instances where state-backed institutions from China stepped in and helped sanctions hit Novatec, Russian LNG provider in the Arctic to fund uh, its ambitious projects. So with the level of unprecedented sanctions, we can expect that Chinese state institutions as Expert Import Bank uh, of China, also China Development Bank, can play a significant role in providing funding, but also in providing energy equipment that is currently under sanction. Chinese position has been quite ambivalent. Uh, it adopted wait-and-see approach, and it was even visible in linguistic equilibristic that the Chinese government adopted. It avoided a saying that there is a war in Ukraine. At the same time, it emphasized peace uh, negotiations that have to be held uh, between Ukraine and Russia. It even campaigned it to be this negotiator uh, between uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine. So China is under increasing pressure how to toe this very delicate line between violating Western sanctions and also supporting its partner. Looking forward, Russia is limited in terms of partners. It has now China, potentially India, that it can pivot to. So the hedging opportunities for Moscow are quite constrained. Prior to the war in Ukraine, Russia knew that it was becoming increasingly dependent on China. So its strategy was to diversify its pivot to Asia, to indeed other Asian countries like Japan and South Korea. Now that Tokyo and Seoul joined this broad sanctioning coalition, the limit for maneuver is not there. So in the long term, Russia will be even more dependent on China. So these asymmetrical relations will be even more symmetric. So the bottom line here, um, Russia will need China more than vice versa, and China will exploit this isolated position of Moscow. This brings us to our two Japan Memo questions, which we ask our guests every month. The first question is, do you have any book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan, Maria? 
I can highly recommend the recent book that was published by the Adelphi series. And this is one by one of our hosts, Robert Ward and Yuka Koshina, on Japan's effectiveness as a geoeconomic actor. It does give you a very good insight about the evolution of Japan as a geoeconomic actor and gives you the context what Japan can do in terms of its means, implementation and effectiveness, given Japan's very constrained setting in terms of its military capability. So I greatly enjoyed it, learned quite a lot also historically, and it's very astute and crisp analysis on all uh, emerging issues, uh, semiconductors, rare earth metals. I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you, Maria. Super that you enjoyed the, uh, the book. And the second Japan memo question, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? When I came to Japan, I had my own expectations of the country, and I think that reverberates with every Westerner that there is an expectation that Japan is a technologically advanced country everywhere. And I think it is true in most of instances. You see robots waving at you at some local shops. But at the same time, there is a charming mix between all technology, for example, fax machines are still widely used in Japan. So that was a big surprise to me to see this uh, truly a mishmash of technologies in Japan and how everyone navigates this. Fax machines, and you didn't mention the abacus yeah, as well. well okay. is, uh, <laughs> didn't go that far. <laughs> truly impressive. I think they have abacus competitions as well. And the noise of all the beads are going backwards and forwards is quite uh, astonishing. Thank you so much, Maria, and, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend giving a listen to our May episode on Japan's energy security with Terazawa Tatsuya, who is chairman and CEO of the Institute of Energy Economics Japan, IEEJ. For more insightful analysis, please also look at past research by the Japan Chair Program, which is by the IISS as well, obviously, which is on our website, IISS.org. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at, at Robert Allen Ward and at Togashi Mariko. Maria is also very active on Twitter, and we encourage you to follow her at, at Maria underscore Shagina to keep up to date with the latest developments on sanctions. Thank you and see you next time.